Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have a great conversation with AOJ, Art of Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt, Danny Stolfi. Originally from Long Island, Danny moved to Southern California in 2012 to learn from and work with the renowned Mendez brothers, Professor Gee and Professor Hoffa Mendez. He has over 12 years of experience practicing the art and now lives the dream of spreading the jiu-jitsu lifestyle through his academy, Breathe Jiu-Jitsu in Bayport, New York. I especially appreciate what an open book Danny is about sharing his ups and downs on the journey. It can give the rest of us a sense of comfort and direction to know that we are not the only ones that can struggle with intense adversity and pressure at times, and more importantly, that there is light at the end of each turn. Check out his instructionals, De La Hiva Fundamentals at BJJ Fanatics, and Competition Passing at Daijitsu.com. Some housekeeping notes. Early on, you may hear Danny refer to someone named Jamie, and I neglected to set up context. Jamie is Danny's fiancé and business partner. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share the podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And check out our Forever White Belt merchandise at teespring.com forever-white-belt. And leave us a message if you want and some feedback at anchor.com forward slash forever white belt. There's a little button there you can press and give us ideas in terms of guests or whatever you may want. <laughs> also, like our Facebook page to get all the latest at facebook.com forward slash forever white belt. And check us out on all the socials by searching for, you guessed it, Forever White Belt. And with that, I give you Danny Stolfi. Danny, it's, it's uh, such an honor to have you on the show. Awesome, man. I'm stoked to be here. For the people who may not know who you are, why don't you give us a little bit about your origin? Well, my name is Danny Stolfi. I own Breathe Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Bayport, New York. It's on the east end of Long Island. I'm a Mendez Brothers black belt. I trained at AOJ for a little bit over five years. Got my black belt over there. I originally started in Long Island at a gym called Sarah BJJ. Wow. So you started at Sarah. I had no idea about that. That's so interesting. Yeah. I actually currently train there often with my uh, my friend, Jason Rao. I train in some of his classes. I even take lessons from him and it's uh, it's nice. Wow. There, there seems to be this recurring theme with you of a lot of cross-training with various different gyms, but we'll get into that because I, I do want to talk about that. It's a very interesting type of thing. But can you tell us how did you even start jujitsu and what did day one of jujitsu look like for you? I got into jujitsu from playing the UFC video game. It was like 2009. I think UFC <laughs> just came out with the video game on uh, Xbox 360 and me and all my friends were playing it. I went out and bought an Xbox because of the game. And uh, I just got super obsessed with it. And I learned about jiu-jitsu through there. It just, it looked really cool to me. I would always use BJ Penn and I would like just try to submit people. I mean, initially I would use like Miracle Crow Cop and I would just throw head kicks and I thought that that was awesome. But then once I saw the jiu-jitsu, I just became super obsessed with that. And then, um, you know, eventually I, I sought out some training myself. And um, originally it was me and my friend Dave. We tried out an intro class at Sarah. The first day, the first intro class, I think we learned like a hip bump sweep and then like a hip bump to a guillotine from the clothes mm -hmm. guard. Mm -hmm. And I remember not being able to do the guillotine and like that kind of bothered me. But I remember thinking it was really cool that I would learn how to do it. And yeah, and just from there, I was like, man, I got to learn. I got to do this. Like there's people that know how to do this and they can teach me and then I can be like them. I can be like these black belts. I could be like BJ Penn. That's what kept me. That's that's what got me really just like being on the mat that first day. That was, that was it. So you're on the East Coast then. You're at Sarah for how long? For about three years um, up until I think I just got my purple belt. And then I left. I moved to California to go train with the Mendez brothers. What precipitated that that move? I mean, because that's a huge sort of jump. I started competing a bit in, I would say, March of 2012. I started competing more. 
you know, I was always mm-hmm. athletic. I always played sports and stuff. I, I, you know, um, I wrestled a season in high school. Uh, I mostly played like traditional sports. Yeah. So I always had that like desire to compete because, you know, you, you play sports and then you practice, you practice, you practice, you play a game. So I always want to play games. And then when, when I eventually decided to start competing, I started having some success and I started to believe in myself more. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a tournament. It was a, April of 2012, I believe it was like a New York Open where I didn't win. I, w- I got silver, but I beat the kid that won Pan Ams in my division that year. I submitted him. And so I didn't know he won Pan Ams that year though. I, when I fought him, I was just like, just fighting how I'd fight anybody. But after I found that out, there's this kid, um, he actually just won the third coast grappling. This kid, Adam Benayoun, he told me, he's like, dude, that kid won Pan Ams. I was like, oh, I don't want to curse in here. But I was like, oh man, yeah, that's crazy. No. Yeah. That's crazy. So I, I really started believing in myself. And then when I graduated college, my mom gave me some money. So I took some of that money and I put it towards flying to California to compete worlds. Cause I started, you know, I believe in myself. I was like, I'm going to compete worlds. I think I can win. And, um, I went out there with, um, my friend, he was my, my coach at the time. His name is Charlie Liu. He's, um, the head of a, a company called Jitsu. really nice guy. And I went out with him he kind of took me around like Los Angeles, Long Beach area. I went and competed worlds. I loved the experience. And I, now I had already heard of the Mendez brothers o- about to be opening their school. And um, I remember hearing like through Facebook, Instagram, the Mendez brothers are going to open a school. And I'm like, oh, I'm in California. That's cool. That's where they are. And I think they were handing out little like flyers for the opening of their school. It was supposed to be like the next week. Unfortunately, I wasn't going to be there. So it was like, whatever. But it put it in my mind that like, this is a place I'm close to here right now. I could go here. There's no, there's no reason why I couldn't. But you know, when you grow up in a place where not everybody's really leaving, everybody kind of stays nearby and does their yeah. own thing. You don't really think of that as a possibility. But flying there, competing, having that experience made me feel like, oh, I can do this. You know, later on, I talked to my mom about it. She's like, well, if you want to want to live in California, like I have family out there, we could see if one of them will let you live there. She ended up asking my uncle, my uncle Danny, if I could live with them for a little bit, and he let me live with them for a little bit, and and that made it possible. It's like, cool, I don't have to pay rent. I was working at a California pizza kitchen restaurant here in Long Island. I was wow. able to transfer to one in California in Irvine. Wow. So I had a job. I had a place to stay. It was like, there we go. The stars you know, aligned, man. Exactly. Everything just started to work out, and. um yeah, that's how I ended up there, man. And and so it wasn't like I was super unhappy with my training at Sarah or anything. It wasn't that I didn't like it. It's just it was an it was like an adventure that I wanted to take on. Why AOJ versus like I mean there were so many other academies there at that time too. Just, there was a ton. Yeah. yeah. There's a ton to consider. I, I considered um going to Otto's HQ. I considered mm-hmm. going to Cobrinas. And this is before they were open. But once they were open. It was like, those were the guys who I was like the biggest fan of. Like I was a fan of Eddie Bravo. I was a fan of Marcelo, Andre Galval. Yeah. Like you can't not be, you know what I mean? And um, of course, yeah. But the Mendes brothers were like the ones that like, I saw their style. I saw not just their style, but their lifestyle. They were really mm-hmm. good about sharing their lifestyle, the training, the diet, the strength conditioning. I was like, man, that's the lifestyle to live to be a champion for sure. And and not just that, just their overall message was really positive. They always had inspiring quotes, things that made me feel like I should really chase after my dreams right now. And I like, I vibed with that. And I was like, I want to be there with those people. And yeah, so that's, that's why I wanted to go there. What a great time to get in. I mean, on the ground floor almost, right? Great timing, you know, I couldn't have planned that better. Like you said, the stars aligned, just kind of worked out. I just happened to be at a point in my life where I needed to move on. I had just graduated college in 2012. And so I, I needed to move on to something else in my life. And this all just worked out. (music) 
And it, it doesn't always translate. I find that if you're a great competitor, you're not necessarily a fantastic teacher, right, per se, True. or even adequate. By chance, it did turn out that the Mendez brothers were not, not only, you know, legendary goats almost of, of competing, but their teaching too is, is absolutely phenomenal Yeah, as well. Yeah. So, did you know how good teachers they were at that point? Um, I, you know, I don't know what, I guess I didn't even think about that. Like, I think now knowing what I know, that's true. What you're saying, not every great competitor is also a great teacher. I didn't even know that. I thought they're, they're the best, like for sure, they'll be able to teach me how to be good, but you're right. They, they are both incredible teachers as well. And I think it just comes from their personalities. They just, they really, everything that they do, they want to do it the best. They don't want to just do something halfway. Like they do not half step anything they do and they don't just do it all the way. They do it all the way and take it to the next level. Yeah, that's that's why I think they are, how good they are at teaching and, and competing. It's who they are. How many years do you spend there? A little bit over five years. And then what, you have the itch to go back to the East Coast or, or what's, what's that transition look like? You know, I was competing very heavily, not really paying attention to anything else but jujitsu. Mm-hmm. I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself as well. And eventually just pressure was too much. And um, I started having a tough time with my mental health around the time I was at Brown Bells, like 2016. You know, I was still competing heavily. I was still trying my best to pursue that lifestyle. I even competed a little bit as a black belt before leaving there too. But um, something ha- happened inside me that I was like, this is not the way I want to be spending my time. You know, I, mm-hmm. I need to address other things before I, I move on. So, you know, I, I kind of took back on the competing, training, stopped training as much. And just kind of spent a lot of time really thinking about things, really like sitting with myself a lot and, and just doing some some real like inner work. Of course, I mean, to deal with my mental health, I went to therapy. You know, I talked with my family. I talked with my at the time girlfriend, now fiance. We, you know, I was talking to me. I wasn't just sitting with myself. Well, when I came to certain decisions, I was I was usually alone. But the, the actual decision to move was between me and Jane. It's very interesting. We, and I hope you feel open enough to discuss, you know, it's, it's anxiety, right? Anxiety and um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, OCD, I have anxiety. I've had panic attacks. That's really what like set off this need to be like, whoa, I need to address this because I can't be like trying to compete and train and teach and do private lessons and all this. And so I think that's uh, going back to your question. That's what prompted me to like be like, all right, this isn't working out. You know, I talked with Jamie and she's like, all right, well, like, what do you want to do? And we basically figured, okay, like we can we can do this. Our plan was always to come back and open a school. We didn't know when, but that kind of prompted it. You know, that that shift. Mentally. I want to get back to the OCD and the anxiety. Uh, we just spoke with Sean Roberts, who has some ADHD, and we've spoken to some other people too, Michael Liera Jr., in terms of uh, the pressure of competition teams and being somewhere like Autos, you know, where yeah. for those of us on the outside, we can sort of guess what it's like, but we don't realize the amount of pressure miles that you guys are putting on yourself and the intensity, expectations as well, uh, external as well as internal internal, whether they're real or not or whatever. What was that like? I guess I would say the lifestyle it's, is hard enough itself to put in the correct amount of hours, training, mm. strength, conditioning, dieting, making sure your weight is right, making sure you're sleeping enough, and then putting full-time teaching hours or like even part-time teaching hours on top of that, relationships, family, your other responsibilities, it helps to have a partner with, with finances, you know, different things like that. Like, so I have some help, of course, but the lifestyle itself, again, is hard enough. And then you add everyone in the training room is, is tough. You're working on stuff. It's not working out there, or, you know, you're competing soon. So you want to be training well and winning all the time so that you feel confident. And then comes like comparisons. You start seeing other people doing well, you're not doing as well. Mm -hmm. So you feel bad. 
Mm-hmm. And then even if you tell yourself like, oh, it's a stupid comparison, don't make it. It's still in the back of your head. And if there's enough people having success while you're not having success, it feels really bad. You want to do well for yourself. You want to do well for the team. You want to do well for your professors, your family. I'm dedicating my life to something, to one thing. I moved across the country. I changed my life for this. On top of that, though, all these people believing in you too. And like, so you do believe in yourself, but then you have your doubts and it just compiles into a a whole lot of pressure if you don't know how to deal with the mental side of it. Right. And, and it's not just about having a strong mind. It's about being able to accept the things that you can't control about being able to let go of things. Right. I post uh, wave emojis. And to me, that signifies a lot of different things because of, of course, like, like Bruce Lee, like being like water flowing, Flow. but also yeah. really like the ups and downs, like riding the waves, the ups mm. and downs. Right. Like sometimes I feel real, real, real bad from the competition life. Sometimes I feel the greatest I've ever felt in my life. So it's when things are really bad, learning to let them go, let them pass. When things are really good, learning to ride it, feel it, Mm. enjoy it, be really present in it. And that's stuff I didn't understand in the past. And so that's why I feel I was breaking because I was just always trying to have a strong mind. Like if I was ever feeling doubtful, feeling down, feeling low, no, you're strong. Go train. That's it. You got this. Let's go. Don't be, you know, soft. And that mindset, maybe that mindset works for a lot of people. But for me, that broke. And what I needed was to be able to accept more, to be able to let go more. Yeah, everyone seems to have a different approach. That's interesting. Yeah, trying to yeah. push through that that stone wall. That might work in the short term for individuals, but eventually everyone's day comes. Right. It's interesting too, those UFC fighters also, that they say the same thing about like when they win and they lose. When you win, it's the greatest day in your life. When you lose, it's like the worst day in your entire world's, life. World's, world's, yeah, the world's over for sure. <laughs> Now that you're removed from it to from some extent and that you can share this knowledge for, you know, other students and future competitors and things like that, I think it's immensely beneficial for all of us in the community. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate that. Thanks for giving me a, a place to say it. Yeah. Oh, you bet. You bet. We're totally honored to have it. One thing I noticed that you did get from all those years, one of the many things, you know, to become, you know, who you are today, well-rounded individual, yeah, as well is your fantastic teaching abilities. That's one oh. thing that you're exceptional at that I've Thank noticed. You. I discovered you largely through what you mentioned before, the daijutsu instructional, the, the oh, passing really? instructional, which was phenomenal. I'm like, who is this guy? Wow. Look oh, at how, awesome. how effective he is and how well he flows. And, and it was amazing because the way you Thank articulate you. the details of what you do and that you actually show them as well in an impeccable manner. Tell me about your learning to become a teacher. When did that begin? When did you start teaching and and how how have you improved that process? You want to know what? I had a lot of great teachers in the past. And I think that that's, I think that's what really sets it off is because certain teachers I really connect with and and help me understand things really well. And when I see that, I'm like, oh, so that's, that's how I should communicate that information. And, you know, I learned from Matt Saras, some, some of his great black belts and brown belts, you know, my friend, Jason, my professors, Hoffa and Gee, some of my other teammates who are also professors, Professor Nick, Professor Gustavo, a ton of guys, man. I don't want to leave people up but i i take from that and i see like what works for me what do i not like about it and just kind of try to put out what i think is like the best version of that what did i need when i was learning techniques what did i feel like was missing that's also things i try to consider as well and i think a bit of it does come from having a little bit of an obsessive nature about certain things like it's in a way like the way my brain works it's kind of a gift and a curse like sometimes i really delve really 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 deep into 
certain things and, and it helps me because then I understand things. But then sometimes I go really deep into stuff that probably I didn't need to spend too much time on. That's how. And I appreciate you saying that because it's hard for me to tell. You know what I mean? Like I, I can see results through if the students are doing well, but I'm just doing what I think is right every day. So I appreciate you giving me the compliment. Oh, you bet. One thing I'm curious is, have you ever come across someone like yourself, a student like yourself, a kid like yourself, where, where you identify that person? You're like, oh, this this kid has what I had. Maybe in a sense of like, they look how I looked at that time in their jujitsu or like at a certain time in my jujitsu. It's like, for example, there was a time where I was like only collar dragging people. Like I was just like the most explosive and like violent collar dragging, <laughs> like training partner, which yeah. looking back, I'm like, I would not have liked to train with me if I was doing that to people. Mm, but I have mm. students, I've had students that do the same thing. And then I see it on the outside. I'm like, oh man, I was just like you. I was doing that <laughs> a lot. I don't necessarily discourage those things, but I'll try to tell them how I feel now about it. You know, I give them my mm. perspective about it now. Mm. I'm like, it's good that you can do that. Do that yeah. when you need mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. but try not to do that all the time to people, you know, stuff like that. Speaking of that, let's talk about the difficulties of, well, I don't know, I wouldn't say difficulties, but challenges of teaching. It seems like what I've noticed is that I always wonder, like, how do you guys scale your ability to teach? Because it's so customized per individual, depending on their skill set, right. their, their weight, their age. Right. Every person's different. Right. When there's a group of um, different people, different body types, yeah. um, I think it's really a lot of trial and error. You know, I've been teaching for years and I've been pretty rigid about my game plan sometimes. I'm like, I'm showing Baron Bowl today and I don't care if people can't do it. We'll find a way that they can do it. I guess finding a way that somebody can do it is a good thing to, to learn how to do, but rigidity is the, is the thing to, to let go of. It's like, you know, well, maybe today this person can't do this technique at all, but mm. maybe they get a little bit closer to it today if it's something mm. challenging. Or maybe it's such a basic room of people that, and, and then there's like a couple advanced guys that like, okay, I'll just show basic stuff so that I'm catering to the majority. And then maybe I can allow the more advanced guys to drill their own stuff and then ask me questions while other, other people drill. You know, it's like mm -hmm. finding ways around it to make it, it work within that room. So like going back to your philosophy of the water, the flow and everything. Right? Adapting. So, yeah. 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 Trying to mm -hmm. adapt and, and really just like accept it. But that can be tough too. When, when you really, when you really want to show something is you like, you feel like you've made a breakthrough in something or, or you feel like there's uh, something that you're personally really interested in, in teaching. Like I have to not be selfish sometimes and just be like, this is what the room needs and I have to do it this way. But you do need to keep it interesting as well, right? I mean, we can't just be doing basic, basic stuff all the time. Yeah, all the time, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to know what? I try to mix it up too in that sense where it's like, I show fundamentals all the time. I show things that I think are really important things, you know, just like framing, how to bridge properly, how to hip escape properly, how to mm -hmm. do an armbar or triangle, you know, hip escape from the mound, like really basic stuff. And then sometimes I'll throw in something fancy that even if I don't think they're going to get it today, mm -hmm. it opens their eyes to like, oh, that's a thing you can do. And then maybe right. they try to learn how to do that. Or maybe they look into it or study just to keep their interest peaked. What makes a great academy? The culture, I believe. I believe you have to set the culture. It has to be one where everybody is respectful of each other. I was going to ask yeah. you, what exactly is culture to you? It's tough to say. Culture is kind of a, a story. It's we, we talk amongst each other. We decide what is and is not acceptable through conversation, through experience together. And it's it's an ever-changing story. It's It started for me when we opened this place. I, I set the culture to be as much like AOJ as I possibly could. But then certain things kind of change because we're on the East Coast. People are different here. I'm mm -hmm. a different person here. 
I would say a little bit more myself because it is my place. I don't have to follow someone else's rules. So then certain things, but certain things really stick. I'm like, oh, that's, I need that. You know, that's, uh, I'm going to stick with that. And certain things I don't. And and over time that changes. And then my opinion changes sometimes. And and sometimes I see the students or or we'll talk about certain aspects of like the etiquette. And sometimes they change my eyes on things. I'm like, yeah, you want to know why I could loosen up on that or I should tighten up on that. And I think that that really creates that whole vibe. So what is the culture at, at Breathe? Good question. Currently, I should say, I'm sure it's evolved. It, yeah, it does. It always evolves. Man, I like to think that it's just a it's a place where people can let go of their days and kind of have a good time while still improving, while pushing themselves. I'd say there's a lot of jokes, a lot of storytelling, a lot of drilling, a lot of hard sparring. We also do a lot of mobility. It's it's honestly like like no other place I've been before. It's not like any of the gyms I've ever trained at before. It's its own unique thing. And I think I can confidently say that and not in, in a bragging way. But I have a lot of students who are they've even brown, black belts, purple belts that have trained at other schools. And obviously no disrespect to those schools, but they like the vibe here and they say it's different. They like that there's no like butting heads with people. There's not a lot of like trying to prove anything. But at the same time, we're still training really hard. We're still giving honest training. You know, we're, we're still getting better at jujitsu. And I think it's only now really starting to show in competition. But it's a place where you can develop as a competitor, but also as a hobbyist. And our competitors know how to roll with hobbyists. It's just a totally different thing. Yeah, I was looking through the Instagram of the Academy and, you know, everyone looks really happy. And it's not even one of those like pictures where everyone, you know, just smile, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. You, can, you can see it in their eyes. Yeah, thank you. And um, credits to to Jamie and and, uh, and Connor. They're the ones who, who take the photos. That really should be the vibe when you're doing jujitsu always, right? Like you kind of, even in a hard fight, like you should feel some enjoyment from it i mean that's why you're doing it that's what i what i hope that people can learn like it's mm. this the activity we're doing is like the real reason we're here is to be doing that whole jujitsu thing and if you know you should be having a good time doing that you know it shouldn't be stressful it shouldn't be painful you know it, it shouldn't be uh, making you upset touching on that what, what makes a great student a great student is coachable they're respectful of everybody around they listen to their, their instructors and not in like a drill sergeant way, just in like, a, I respect you and I respect what you have to say. So I'm going to try out what you say first. And if it doesn't happen to work out for me, me as an instructor, I understand that things are different for everybody. So you just but please at least try what I say, because I've been working at this for 12 years. And then when they listen and at least take into consideration what I say, I consider that like coachability. You know, that's, that's what I think makes a really good student. Just someone really considerate of everybody else around them, wants to improve, but is also not rigid. They're okay with if they end up part partnered with somebody who isn't taking it as serious and is maybe messing around. They're not getting mad at them. That's a really good student. Somebody who has patience. Have you had to go through any of those like tough conversations, you know, either pruning at the academy or any of those kind of things? That's something I think is another part of piece of our academy's culture that was uh, missing from certain experiences that I've had is just talking to people when they're doing something you don't like doing. Of course, uh, if someone's like rolling like crazy, sometimes you have to like enforce, you know what I mean? Like be like a mad enforcer, like, all right, like, let me just show you, look, like you're doing something that's like a, like a bonehead move, something that's painful, but doesn't actually work. Let me show you something that's painful and does work. And you know, don't act like that. There's mm-hmm. some of that. And I think that's more common that works everywhere. You, sometimes you just kind of beat up on somebody who's acting wrong. And then they learn like, oh, people are not nice to me when I act like this. I got to stop acting like this. Or mm-hmm. you can pull them aside and say, hey, man, you know, say it's a big guy. And I've done this before. Like, dude, mm-hmm. please be careful throwing your weight around. You're a big guy. I, like, you can hurt somebody. And then for a second, it's awkward. But then they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I could hurt somebody. That's true. Mm-hmm. Or just tell everybody, guys, when we're training, we're trying our best to improve. We're a team. We're all together. We want to help each other. 
right? You're not fighting each other. This is not competition. You can compete with each other safely. If you get into a position where you're not sure what to do, don't just explode in any direction to try to get out. Try to figure out the technical escape. There will be a time for that. If you're competing, it's a competition class. Maybe sometimes you're stuck in a position you don't want the person to score. Maybe you'll freak out, right? But not in here. It's practice. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk to the group as a whole, which I think helps develop the culture. And then some individuals maybe don't think it applies to them or they're just not sure what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. They continue doing this negative behavior. And then we will talk to them, me, my, um, myself, my coaches, we'll talk to them individually, trying our best to be kind, of course, mm -hmm. but just dealing with that feeling of, of awkwardness for ourselves. I think that's mm -hmm. what a lot of people avoid by just beating somebody up who's doing something wrong. They're like avoiding an awkward conversation. But if you have the awkward conversation, it's like 30 seconds to a minute of awkwardness and then they know. Yeah. And then either, either they get it and they're like, okay, you're right. Which all of the students that I've had those conversations with, they really do want to improve. And when they they deal with the awkwardness and, or the negative feeling of like, oh, I did something wrong, you know, try to help them realize you didn't do anything wrong. But, you know, once they dealt with that and then they start training to improve, they see it and they're like, oh, you know, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I have had to do that. And, and, and But it, it works. Talking to people works. It's, it's pretty right. crazy. Or it could be that individual says, you know what, this isn't for me. I want to go somewhere where I get to right. beat everyone up and they beat me up or whatever. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? I think some people are not okay with that too. And so the whole, like we talked about before, like willingness to like let go. Like, okay, this is not for you then because I don't want that in here. I don't want people acting like that in here. Yeah, yeah. I love that you brought up that you have that conversation or, or let them know, hey, we're, we're teammates. We're not like, we're yeah. not competing. We're not competitors against each other. We're, we're an actual team here, you know? Um, you want to know what? I'm learning that a lot more lately from my friend, Jason. I'm training with him a lot. And um, mm -hmm. there's a couple instances training with him where I've like cranked the submission too hard or too fast. And it'd be like, dude, like, what the fuck? You don't have to do that. I'm just like, he's just like, dude, like, what the hell? Like, hold the position. Or like, he'll explain it before the class too. Like, just hold it. You know, you don't have to like hurt somebody. And it takes time for me to understand. It's like, you're right. You're like, why, do, why would I do that? Or like, see the way like, you know, certain training partners train with each other, like good guys. And like, I'll see them like being somewhat respectful of each other or like allowing the other one to work a little bit of a position so that they themselves can figure out how to work out of it. And just, you know, I, I pick up on that team vibe from them. And then I'm like, this is definitely the way. Let's talk about before you open the Academy or your thoughts on opening the Academy, things that you wish you knew tips you can give to like new black belts in terms who may be interested in opening an Academy, things that surprised you in gaps that you had that you had to fill. Right. Tips. First off, if you can try to like, I mean, I, people do it on their own. I didn't do it on my own. I had a partner. I have, I have Jamie with me and she, she's the one who does a lot of like, she did a lot of the hard work with finding the space, talking to landlords, getting the permits, doing the accounting financing you know she, she tries to teach me wow. you know when she can but like that's a lot of stuff that that i'm not focusing on right like mm -hmm. she, she keeps me in the loop of course like we talk about things she mm -hmm. teaches me so that i'm not totally incompetent but first off like having a partner definitely helps Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like I, lessons just that I learned firsthand, definitely make sure you have, make sure you have money or make sure you have uh, investors or, or something, but not just like money enough to open it, like enough to sustain at least like a year and a half of, mm -hmm. of your rents and like utilities and stuff. Consider just a lot of things are going to happen that you're not ready for. Make sure you're ready for that mentally as well. Like we talked mm. about ready to like, let go, accept, have faith. Things are going to work out. You're on the right path. Just make sure you're smart. You know, that's what I wish I would have told myself.
That's a long time to be patient for. I know I've heard this over and over. Everyone says like a year, year and a half, like you're saying, sometimes two years. You open the doors and you expect the tidal wave to come in. That that doesn't necessarily doesn't, no. occur, right? Um, yeah, unfortunately, no. Yeah, luckily when we first opened, I'd say in the first day we had like eight people signed up. It like was it wasn't a whole wow. lot, but it was like it was That's still impressive. Just like, yeah, like, it was like all right, cool. I mean, well, we did an open mat. Well, actually, rewinding back to when we first got our space, you know, we we're having a hard time getting our permits and stuff mm -hmm. just for some like change of use stuff and um you know jamie was in like i call it like a, she was in like a battle with the town like trying to like get everything done mm -hmm. and um we were in the space from like march of 2018 to november not open so we're in the space Ooh. like eat right that's what i mean by like be ready for stuff to go wrong that you didn't expect mm -hmm. to go wrong i would also say make sure you find the right professionals good lawyer yeah. Yeah. Good accountant. Don't try to do everything on your own right away. What Figure out what you can do on your own because there are certain things you can, especially if the business is a small enough scale. But find the right professionals for sure. Did you guys do much marketing, advertising, the whole thing? Or was it word of mouth? Yeah, I think we might have put out like a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad, like, you know, paid whatever, how much to have it sure. on there. But the best thing has been word of mouth. I mean, luckily in that time that we were closed, like I was able to like fit in some private lessons. So we got to know some people. I mean, word of mouth did kind of go around. We started hearing that there was a buzz around some of the certain academies. Oh, like there's a Mendes Brothers Black Belt moving into the area. A couple of people got interested, took private lessons at me, tell some of their friends, bring in some of their family. And I feel like that's actually been the real best way that we get people. Like you do find people that inquire because they saw you on the internet or people that like walk by but i feel like that's rare compared to my cousin trains my co-worker trains my friend trains those are the people that come in and end up like staying because they know the people personally who did it so they know how they could turn out and they, and they like it otherwise it's just like try to put up nice photos videos try to like get people to like see kind of what the experience of being here is like what are your thoughts on the state of jujitsu right now the state of jiu-jitsu is amazing right now, man. Um, I would say that the gi and no gi games have definitely gone their own like separate ways for sure, but they're both like turning into really cool things in my opinion. What do you mean um, by that? Separate ways? I would say there was always a lot of similarities. Everybody was training gi and no gi, but mm. then, you know, what is it like five, seven years ago, a lot of people started only training gi, only training no gi. And then the games changed because they're the specific rule sets, especially with the introduction of like heel hooks and, and reap. It just changes everything. And then with the, the innovation of all the lapel stuff that people are doing, all the different types of worm guards there are, all the different, you know what I mean? Like I was doing that for a while, I was burn bowling for a while, playing with lapels for a while. I'm now more recently doing more no gi, doing more leg locks. Like I think it's all exciting it's all fun i think it's hard to be the best at both for sure but i think at like the state of jujitsu it's like you choose like do you want to try to just do a little bit of everything and just kind of have fun with it and like get as good as you can doing both you can still compete you know there's plenty mm -hmm. of people who do it and do it at the highest level and still win or do you want to like hyper specialize in one thing because you enjoy it mm -hmm. i think it's a really cool place to be because there's so many different places you can go you know i, I think about when i when i try to make my schedule i consider there's gi classes no gi classes different levels basic fundamental advanced then i consider like i just did a combat jiu-jitsu right i've done some combat jiu-jitsu training with my students and like we've generated some interest in it and i'm like well is that something i want to add to the schedule wrestling for jiu-jitsu we had wrestling for jiu-jitsu on our schedule for a while it's hard to get people to to want to wrestle but like when it's for jiu-jitsu it's a little bit different because it's like well i can actually use this in what, what i'm doing to me it's so cool because before it was just like jiu-jitsu with a gi jiu-jitsu without a gi it's like you right. can do so many ways there's mma we didn't talk about that i mean i'm not yeah. doing that now, judo for jiu-jitsu judo yeah. right look i haven't talked about all this stuff right exactly there's so much 
Let's talk about that combat jujitsu experience. What was that like for you? It was super exciting to see some of the highlights that I saw of you. Thanks. Like looking back, it was pretty crazy. I was I was a little bit like there was one day where I, like afterwards I was like, what the hell? Like there's people like smacking me. But I guess like it was just a really good overall experience, a really good learning experience for me overall as a martial artist. I never really considered myself a martial artist. I considered myself an athlete and a teacher or a coach. But once strikes were added, and you know, would be it like open hand, whatever, it changed a lot because then like the tempo of the match changed. Yeah. The level of respect I had to have for the other person had to change. Whether or not I thought my jiu-jitsu was better, they can still hit me. That changed things. My thoughts towards MMA fighters changed. Not that I ever disrespected them. I always had respect for them, but feeling a little bit more of what they had to go through. You know, there was one match where I got hit in my body and that was something I was not ready for at all. I got hit in my body pretty hard. I was like, oh, you know, imagine this dude could punch me. Imagine if he could kick wow. me. Gained so much more respect for, for MMA fighters there. It gives me more perspective for my law enforcement officer uh, students mm. that I have. Like, you know, I'm teaching them jiu-jitsu and I'm telling them if they learn this, it's going to help them. And for sure it will. Mm. You're going to learn distance management. You're going to learn how to protect your head. You're going to learn how to fall properly. You're going to learn all the positions of jiu-jitsu. You need to know that. But also like, what if you don't have the right distance that you want? What if somebody can hit you or swing on you? Random people are not just going to grapple with you. They might want to try to hit you. And like, they need to know that. I think anybody who starts jiu-jitsu wants to know that they can handle themselves in a, in a self-defense situation or, or a confrontation. Anyone. Right. I mean, even if they say they're focused on sports, like you do think in the back of your head, you would like to defend yourself in a fight. I feel like it gave me a better understanding of a lot of those different things. What a fascinating combination, though, because you're going no gi, you have to still deal with all the jujitsu stuff in terms of leg locks and the normal jujitsu as well. But now you have strikes too, and you, right. you're in a competition setting, so you have spectators. It's kind of high profile. Uh, there's yeah. a clock in terms of time you have to deal with. How did you even train for that or simulate all that? You want to know what? I definitely, um, I really, really, really believe in jiu-jitsu. I really believe in it. And I believe in my jiu-jitsu. And I believed that my style would hold up really well in that setting. Like I said, I did learn a lot about those things like tempo and like body shots. I definitely learned a lot there. I definitely learned that like, you know, after you get hit, there is going to be a period where you kind of need to regather your bearings before you can kind of do anything productive mm -hmm. if it's hard enough. I learned those things. I kept training a lot of nogi, like submission only style. I just, I trained a lot of nogi submission only style. And um, mm -hmm. just my style of guard, I believe believe really lends to not being able to be hit. I, I keep a, a long distance like Delahiva mm -hmm. is a, a long distance guard. Mm -hmm. K guard, I'm upside down. I'm kind of at a longer distance. Reverse Delahiva, knee shield, all these positions I'm kind of far so you can't really hit me too effectively. I just focus on playing the game the way I always play it. It was just like luckily the way I play is pretty safe already. So I just I did a lot of that. And then you know we, we did rounds where we're like lightly tapping each other. I yeah. definitely could have done more rounds where I was getting hit harder. That was something I learned. I thought about it I'm like that makes sense because like MMA fighters don't spar hard every day. There's a couple times, maybe like once a week, you know, if sure. they're in camp even where they're actually hitting each other real hard. Right. And I was like, that's what I should have been doing a little bit more of. But the way I actually trained was just like really training sub only jujitsu, you know. It's funny because I really considered myself a gi guy. When I first moved back uh, home, because that's really most of what I was doing at AOJ was training in the gi, competing and trying to be the best I can be in the gi so that I could win worlds. And, uh, you know, that changed. And now, like, I made a conscious decision to, like, not focus so much on gi to enter into this submission-only world. Even going back to, like, the state of jiu-jitsu, what makes it exciting is events like combat jiu-jitsu, events like, you know, it's not around anymore, but EBI. Like, that made jiu-jitsu real exciting. Who's number one? Fight to win. Yeah. Those events make it really exciting. Can you tell us yeah. a time when you, you considered just quitting? When I first went to AOJ and wow. I wasn't even really training a lot yet. I was training like every day for sure. But some of those competitors were just so dialed in that even blue belts and white belts were beating me and I showed up as a purple belt. Wow. That's I must couldn't, be demoralizing. It was. It was totally. 
Totally. Mm -hmm. Because I was, you know, I wasn't like the best guy at the gym that I was training at before, but like, I felt like a good purple belt. You know, I felt like I was right where I was. And then when I moved, and here's the thing is that we're talking about specifically a handful of competitors that in my mind made it seem like the whole gym was so much better than me. It was like, I was always rolling with competitors and and these guys were smashing me and and it made me, I would go there all day and train. And then I'd have some days where I go to work. And then sometimes I'm at work, hey, being here, I'm training so hard. I'm not doing well. And I'm working and I'm away from my family. So it's that Um, inner negative voice again, huh? inner negative voice again mm. exactly that made me want to quit there was another time where i remember jamie and i had just gotten together and we were long distance she was on the east coast i was on the west coast i went home to the east coast competed saw her we spent like you know maybe a week together or something then i had to leave and go back then mm. i wanted to quit i was like man yeah. i want to just go back home and be with her and like i, t- I could still do jujitsu. i don't need to do this sure wanted to quit yeah those were definitely two times i wanted to quit <laughs> you want to know what though man the idea of having to pursue any other field than jujitsu. Jitsu. There was a point in my head when I was in college that I was like, I don't want to do anything else. Like I'm going to do jujitsu because everything else seems like hard and boring. Just wasn't and, your thing. Right. But I didn't see that as a path. Every time I wanted to quit, I got to that point where it's like, I could quit because this is hard, but whatever other path I take, it's going to be hard. So choose your, which one do I want? You know, which one's yeah. more worth it? It's like, all right, I'll just stick with jujitsu. It's like, I know it sucks right now, but I'll just keep doing it. And you get through those, like you said, you get through those negative thoughts, you know, they go away and then you're like, okay, it's okay. I'm fine right now. You know, let's keep going. Can you tell us a time when you witnessed something really special of uh, one of your students, let's say? There's one that sticks out. There's this kid. He's like five years old. He was a little bit overweight. And apparently there was a kid on the playground that was always messing with him, always making fun of him. And, you know, I only found out about the story because the mother came up and told me, but the kid started shoving him. You know, it became just verbal, became physical. The kid was shoving him. And it was like an older kid. The kid might've been like seven years old. And he's messing with a five-year-old kid who's overweight. But the five-year-old kid's training jiu-jitsu. So what did he do? He took him down, he mounted him and he pinned his wrists. (laughs) He held him down. He just held him there. Mm -hmm. And then the teacher separated them and, you know, everything was okay. And it was like, look, Look at that. This kid's wow. confident enough in himself to say, you know what? You're going to no do more. something else if you're pushing me. Yeah, no more. Look at mm-hmm. this kid's empowered. He's not like, hey, like I'm worthless. I'm going to go sit in the corner because these kids were being mean to me. He's like, no, you know, screw that. That's Man. awesome. Danny, your thoughts on how can we get more people involved in jujitsu? I really do think that making jujitsu a more interesting event for spectators to watch is the way mm-hmm. because why do kids want to stick with baseball or football or, or whatever? It's it's because they, in my head, it's, it's because they saw it on TV or whatever, or their parents love it because they've been watching it their whole life or they've been mm-hmm. involved in the sport their whole life. Mm-hmm. I think seeing it as something really cool, as, uh, just spectating makes you more interested in like, oh, like I can do that. Oh, I saw a jujitsu school around. I can do mm-hmm. that. You go, you fire, you do it, you bring your kids, then it really spreads. I think we're spreading it by just doing it. It's going mm-hmm. to spread, but I think like having attention on it having real eyes on I mean what you're doing right you're bringing more attention to athletes to jiu-jitsu attention eyes on jiu-jitsu spreads jiu-jitsu and if it's an interesting event that they're watching combat jiu-jitsu maybe it's not for everybody but it's pretty exciting you get eyes on it the greatest response I've ever got from a tournament I've done was combat jiu-jitsu and that's not even what I've been doing for the past 12 years I've been just doing jiu-jitsu but the people who don't really understand jiu-jitsu saw that and they're like wow that's super exciting where you know some of the other highlights I've had like man that's cool you know but the response was a little bit different this time And I think just when I did Emerald City, it was so well produced that it made people look at that match like it was way more special than any of the other matches I've done, even though I've done some pretty important ones. You know, I've competed at Worlds a bunch. People throwing events like that, I think that's putting eyes on jiu-jitsu. I think that's making people more aware of who the the good guys are, who to watch. It's making kids want to do it more. It's interesting that you say important too, and and then you uh, equate it with Worlds and things like that. When I think about it, how subjective that is, right? Maybe in the future, combat jiu-jitsu could be the important thing. 
or right. another event and right. our traditional important events are no longer carry that right. kind of weight. But it, yeah, importance is so personal. It's yeah, That's right. the thing too, is you can sit and try to think, what does everybody around me think is important? And let me right. try to do that thing that they all think is important and that they yeah. all respect. Or like, what's important to me, right? Yeah. I, when I did that combat, yeah. Jesus was like, man, you want to know what? I would like to do really well at this tournament and take this seriously. I mean, not that I didn't take it seriously, but like, I was like, I don't know, it could be like a one-off thing. But now I'm like, dude, I, if I get invited, for sure I'm doing it. The importance has changed. I got to admit, yeah. after seeing the daijutsu material that you had and some of your older competing footage and stuff too, I mean, you were on my list of, of guests that I always wanted to talk to. Oh, but, thanks. Thank but you. But I have to admit, like you said, combat jujitsu was the tipping point. That's where like, okay, I'm going to reach out to Danny. But yeah. the thing is like, that's how important that event became is what I'm illustrating. Yeah. It's just an interesting touch point in time for your career. It is. It's definitely an interesting point in my career. I think it goes back to just removing a little bit of that pressure, taking a step back sometimes, riding out whatever comes at you. What's your current A game? What's working for me most? I'm making some like underhook Delahiva stuff work. Play a lot of knee shields, K guard versus Delahiva. I play a lot of like outside hook guards. That's my favorite stuff. And then like if I'm playing on top, I like speed passing, cool. leg dragging. Yeah. What are aspects of a game where you feel you could improve even techniques and things that did not resonate with you as much? Yeah, things that did not resonate with me as much, I would say, like Butterfly Guard. That's definitely something I don't understand as well. I understand like the basics, right? Like mm -hmm. everything we had to learn coming up. I just didn't delve deep into like the advanced sides of it. And like even now, like I've learned um, different leg lock entries from Butterfly Guard, different connections, different sequences, and I've drilled them even. It's just mm -hmm. that I just don't gravitate towards it when we go to spar, when we slap hands. Like if I intentionally tell myself that's what I'm working on, I will work on it. Mm -hmm. But it's not something that I find myself self-gravitating towards and trying to go deeper and deeper into it. It's like, I start learning more and more and more. And then I'm like, yeah, but I want to go back to trying to burn bolo people. Or I want to go back yeah, to K or something, right? Yeah. K guard or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Just That's fascinating towards. for someone who's so comfortable with having people above there on top of them, you know, and are above them or you being underneath. And that would have been one of the last, my last guesses with your game. It's another one of those things that like, like we said, like they start to develop so separately. It's like I can become so specified. Yeah. And yeah. outside hook guards that like once I'm in an inside hook guard position, I'm just not like as well versed. So, so what's your uh, go-to takedown? In the gi, it was definitely the collar drag. That's one I use the most. Oh, that's um, right. In no gi, I would say probably an outside single. I like like thing I'm oh. most comfortable with is like shooting from space outside singles. I'm definitely feeling more comfortable with like rush-ins or two-on-ones. Yeah. Uh, front headlocks now because I've, I've put a little bit more work into it but um those two for sure for well, sweep you single know, a lot of those things in a lot of your game are really not predicated on but definitely enhanced by a lot of your mobility work can you talk about the mobility in terms of your philosophy your game or whatever because it seems i've never seen someone with such an emphasis on mobility and with such great online material for those of us to oh, see thanks. to study and be oh man this is a great mobility type of workout or whatever yeah. Well, it comes from just the way I like to warm up. I will warm up with like light rolls and stuff. I will warm up with running sometimes with like shrimps, stuff like that with the class. But um, my fiance is a, is a yogi. Like she's a certified yoga instructor. I've taken some things from her. She was also in physical therapy. So she's given me exercises from there. I have coaches around me. I have um, Brandon Remy. He's like a functional training coach. He showed me a bunch of mobility stuff. So I have people showing me a bunch of different things that I've incorporated into the warm up. And I like warming up with mobility, dynamic mobility, because you can start off very 
very light and slow, especially when you're sore or tired from training or just sore or tired from everyday life. It's hard to just jump into running. It's hard to just jump into front rolls. It's hard because you're sometimes you're stiff. So I like to warm up real slow using mobility drills because it helps open you up, helps get your, your range of motion in order. To me, I feel it helps prevent injury because you're working yes. not just your flexibility, you're working your strength, your range of motion. That way, when we go into the intense activity that we're doing, our body's ready. And then mentally, you're not so worried about your body because you're not feeling that stiffness, that tension that you right. can kind of loosen up and train more comfortably. You know, And then you add in not worrying about your training partners trying to kill you. And then it just becomes a nice training experience. That's such a fantastic discovery when you began doing it as such a young man, because you can take so much punishment at that age, you know, when you're really young. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a high priority for those of us in the masters. It's imperative. I find right. that, you know, your warm ups and a lot of your mobility drills are just so important in terms of longevity. Exactly. You want to be able to train for a long time because we all see all the benefits of jujitsu and you have to take care of your body, you have to take care of your mind, right? And your actual jujitsu training. It's not just yeah. jujitsu training, right? It's, it's, there's a lot to it. If it was up to me, man, we would, we'd be having like meditations and breathing in class on top of doing mobility and it would be a long day. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be an awesome. Yeah. Class. One question I like to ask is, uh, how'd you learn to tie your belt? Um, okay. So it's my belt tie has evolved over time. The way I tie it now has come from my training partners, actually two in particular, and they're, they're both from Hawaii and they both train at the same school. My friend Evan Isaki taught me how to wrap the belt around your waist clean, right? So it doesn't cross over the back, but right. not like wrapping it around one after the other. He does it a way where he ties it around the front and then just tucks it under as he pulls it around the front. And huh. I'll have to make a, I'll, I'll make a video sometime, but I'll give them credit. hundred <laughs> percent. I'll give them credit on that. Yeah. And then the way I tie wow. it, it's different. It's interesting, but it's like the knot comes out looking a little bit different than anything you've seen, but like it just doesn't come untied. That was Ian Delizo who taught me how to tie it that way. They both teach out of uh, Atos Kawaii, Isaki Jiu Jitsu. You want to learn how to tie your belt? No, I'm just kidding. They have some of the best Jiu Jitsu. They were two of my main training partners at AOJ. I would for sure learn from them. I can't wait to go visit those guys in Kauai too, right? It's like, Heck it's yeah, pick yeah. A better place. Let's talk about your instructionals. You know, what you got out there. You have the Dai Jitsu uh, passing instructional, you have the yes. uh, BJJ Fanatics De La Hiva fundamental. You even right. have a lot of people don't know this, but you have a Breathe YouTube channel. The material on it is fantastic. And the Thank quality so and production is, is wonderful. So, I mean, I that stuff that. is evergreen, you. you know? Yeah, I definitely need to get up on that uh, for sure. It's, it's been, man, that's what, dude, hats off to all the dudes that are like competing, got dope websites, uh, running their own <laughs> schools. It's like, it's. I don't know how you guys do it. Yeah, I don't know how it's, they do it. It's underappreciated how much some people do, man. Like, we um, see, you know, I'm sure it's underappreciated, like the teams that these people have too. Like, sometimes, yeah, like, yeah. these guys don't get the, the shine they deserve but like some people are good at doing that like you watch like some like keenan's content like he like yeah. shows his boys he shows his boys that are helping him out yeah that For behind sure. the I'll, scenes I'll, stuff yeah, yeah it's cool I'll, I'll definitely try to put some some more stuff i'll definitely try to update awesome it. yeah thank you man thank you of course so danny is there anyone you want to shout out or give any props to definitely shout out to my fiance jamie she's the co-owner here at the gym and uh so much more shout out to all my students at breathe my coaches connor and eddie transcend bjj Total Motion 360, Redefined Meals, my coach Brandon Remy, my coach Jason Rao, um, my professors, the Mendez brothers, my family, you, <laughs> Adolfo, so Dan you put me on here. Oh, thank you, sir. So Danny, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're doing? Follow my Instagram. You can check out our website, breathejitsu.com. Check out uh, Breathe Jiu-Jitsu Instagram. I'll try to be better at updating those things as we move forward. 
All right. Thanks so much for your time, Danny. We so appreciate you having on the show. Thank you, Adolfo. It was a great time. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Thanks for watching, listening out there. I am Adolfo Fronda at Forever WB Show on Instagram. Check us out on the socials. Just search Forever White Belt. You'll find us. Give us the five stars on iTunes and, and all the places you may be listening or watching this. We really appreciate it. See you guys next time.